Well, the covenant of marriage, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Let's uh, jump in with prayer. Well, Father, we praise you for being a God who makes covenants, a God who keeps covenants, a God who, because of your steadfast love, you enter into covenant with your people, with us, and what a kindness that is. And because of your faithfulness, you stay in that covenant with us, you keep that covenant. And so we praise you for the salvation that comes to us through covenant. And we pray that you would impress upon us the beauty of covenants and the weight of covenants, that you would conform us to your image and to the image of Christ, that we would keep our covenants and value them. Um, And so we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's just think practically for a minute about covenants, especially when we think about the covenant of marriage. What's, what's beautiful about it? What's good about a covenant? What, what, when we look at a covenant, why are covenants good things? Just throw out some ideas. So it brings clarity, there's one thing to a relationship of, okay, what are the terms of this? And that, that'll be one thing when we talk about just what a covenant is. In a way, it's, it's terms of union. And so it's a way of setting down, here are the terms of this union, this relationship. So clarity, what are other good things? Binding. There's a bindingness to it. And why, because there's a, two sides to that. Why is that good? So there's a sense of security that a covenant brings, that this is something that is binding. And there's a part of all of us, and especially uh, the part that is in Christ, that values that kind of security. We'll talk a little bit about what, what do we not like about covenants, and one of them is the same thing. It's binding. Um, but what are other good things that we like about covenants, that sh- we should like about covenants? Clarity, security. Yeah, that in a way there's a certain sort of accountability and establishment of a relationship that gives grounding to it, responsibility to it, motivation for it. Yeah. What are other things? I think we would say it also makes visible something in our earthly relationships that is true of our invisible relationship with the Lord. It sort of makes tangible something that is real but unseen. What do we tend to not like about covenants? There's one, the exclusivity of it, which is, there's a value of it, right? The exclusiveness of it is one of the sweet pieces, but then part of what we don't like about it is it's exclusive. You have one of these, you're off the market, right? And there's something in the flesh that doesn't like to be confined, doesn't like the exclusivity of it, doesn't like to be possessed by other, not maliciously, but in a good sense. What are things we don't like? Said one, the bindingness of it. It's concrete, it's established till death. Yeah, no way out. And there's a good part to that, right? This gets maybe to the relational piece that Covenants, if we take them seriously, force us to work things out when otherwise we maybe wouldn't. It sort of even calls us and pushes us to reconcile things, unless you want to live miserable. And I'd hope we wouldn't want to. Sometimes we simply do. What are the things we don't like about covenants? When they're broken? Yeah, and so some ways that, that, yeah, when they're devalued, when they're demeaned, when they're broken, yeah. What else? Sometimes the terms, right, that there's responsibilities there. There's things that we're called to be and to do that are self-sacrificing, that covenants are kept together by love. That'll be one of the things we talk about. Love is the bond of covenant. 
There, there are no longer two, Jesus said in Matthew 19.6 about marriage, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. He doesn't use the word covenant there, but that's what he's speaking to. The joining together of two people by God and that can't be separated by man. That are only for God to separate. So we're going to talk about the meaning of covenant how marriage fits into that covenant, just the importance of keeping covenants along with just the beauty of it. And then we'll talk a little bit about divorce and remarriage as well and what that means for the marriage covenant. That a covenant is an agreement between two or more parties. Remember, even David and Jonathan, right, you remember, are going to enter into a kind of covenant. It's more of a friendship kind of covenant, not a marriage covenant. But there's going to be this sort of exchanging, if you will, of agreement of here are the terms of our relationship. Covenants are terms of union. They involve promises, according to Psalm 89.3. All covenants include promises, or we could call them vows. They involve pledges. So often there'll be something given, some token, some pledge. Here's what I'm willing to do and to be. So that's why, you know, in marriage ceremony, right, we, get, we exchange rings. In one way, it's symbolic of various things, but it's also a kind of pledge. There's a reason why you bring the ring that is to be given to your spouse and vice versa. There are usually witnesses. There should be witnesses. Typically, covenants require witnesses. There's signs and symbols to help all those involved in that covenant remember and even celebrate that exchange. And that's another part that's a beauty of a covenant is it is communal. There's something public about it. There's something witnessed by it that's beyond just the parties that are in it. And this is going to be a really important piece of marriage. We tend to just think about, oh, it's my marriage. What I do with it is my business. And God is first going to say, no, what you do with it is my business, firstly. But he's also going to say, and it's also the business of the church, of those who came and witnessed this, partook in saying, okay, we're going to help you carry out this covenant. First time we see the word covenant in the Bible, it's with Noah in Genesis 6 8. It's the first mention of the word. When God spoke to Noah, but I will establish my covenant with you, Genesis 6 18. And you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And then the covenant's going to be explained by God later in Genesis 9. And a sign is going to be given by which they would remember it. What was the sign that God's going to give? The sign of the covenant? It's going to be a rainbow. He says, It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant. Even God's going to put that sign there. And he's saying so that he would remember. Is it because he forgot? Or is he sort of saying remember, using remember in the sense that it's going to stir him in a sense to regard it? Same for us. We see it. We, we remember it. Which is between me, and I love this, and you, and every living creature of all flesh. So it's not just a covenant with Noah, right? It's a covenant with who? With all of us with every creature, even. Cows look up, see a rainbow. And there's something that stirs this sense of, okay, that's part of that agreement. But then especially for us, when we see a rainbow, that's meant to mean something. Which to me is some of the painful, tragic irony of who has taken that symbol in our day and age to be their symbol, right? Just gay pride and the gay pride movement and the in a sense that here's God that is going to judge the world because of its wickedness, especially its violence. And then the rainbow is a symbol of his mercy, a symbol of, okay, I'm not going to destroy the earth and people in it by flood any longer. I'm going to see that and remember it. And then for mankind to now take it as a symbol of rebellion, um, as a, of a disregard for God and his word. That's what we tend to do with the signs that God gives and yet it doesn't change what he does with it. When he sees it, he remembers his covenant. Not just with Noah, but with all of us. And that's going to start a theme of covenants in the Bible. 
He's gonna make, God's going to make a covenant with Abraham to multiply him, make him a father of many nations. And then he gave Abraham and his offspring what sign? What sign is he going to give Abraham and his offspring? Yeah, the sign of circumcision. That he promised that from your seed, I'm going to make many nations. From your seed, I'm going to bless the nations. Even a reference to the coming Christ that's going to come from the seed of Abraham. So circumcision was a sign of that covenant. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you seed. I'm going to give you blessing. And through you, I'm going to bless the nations. Ultimately be fulfilled in Christ. The nation of Israel, when redeemed from Egypt in Exodus, was given the book of the covenant, Exodus 24-7. And for composed of all these laws, all these ordinances that God gave through Moses at Mount Sinai. It says, and the people entered into covenant with God to keep his law, to walk in his ways. And you even think about just how many laws and rules were in that book of the covenant. And God didn't think it was too much. And even then, God thought, this is just a sampling. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor for example. And here's 613 examples of how you do that. It could have been 6,000. And so it was just, again, that, that, and he didn't think that was too much. But was it too much? Yeah, not because of the law, but because of us. So the Apostle Paul is going to refer to that covenant as the old covenant, 2 Corinthians 3.14. This sort of binding agreement and relationship between God and the people of Israel based on the words that God spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai. And the people of Israel, if you remember, they vowed to keep that covenant. Remember, they said, all that you have spoken, we will do. And that's usually how vows work is you just say, I promise I will fulfill this, and usually don't understand what you're saying. Same at a wedding ceremony. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And we're standing up there going, got it, I'll do it. And we're smiling while we say it. That's how you know they don't understand what they're saying. Everybody's so happy. Now, I'm saying we should be happy. It's a great celebration. It's a wonderful but do we grasp the gravity of those vows in sickness and in health? No matter what comes, no matter what happens, as long as we both shall live, I will be faithful to you, you only. I will love you, serve you, give my life for your good. I mean, that's sort of the weight of it. And that's what Israel is saying to God when they say, yeah, everything that you've spoken will do. And then they received the blood of the covenant, Exodus 24, 8, as a sign. That is, Moses is going to offer a sacrifice. He's going to take that blood, if you remember, and he's going to sprinkle it on the people as a sign, as a symbol. And it's a sign in two ways. In one way that, okay, you break this covenant in what? It's death. You keep this covenant, it's life. That's why it was the blood was the symbol the blood of this covenant, a kind of seal on their covenant with God. Because of their sin, of course, the people of Israel were not able to keep the old covenant. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 32. God's going to say, you, just, you, you can't keep it. There's something wrong, not on the outside, but on the inside. And that we don't, in the flesh, love God with all our hearts. So much. We don't love one another. None of us do. So none of us could ever keep that covenant. Because the covenant law displays the holiness of our God and it highlights our sinfulness all at the same time. And therefore, it shows our need for a Savior. That's where the law ultimately is a servant to salvation. It's a servant to showing us His holiness, our sinfulness, and we need someone to bridge that gap. Someone to pay for our sin and bring us to God. Which is why through Jeremiah, God's going to say, I'm going to bring a new covenant. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. Jeremiah 31 verse 33, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me 
from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. What the law was too weak to do because of human sin, God's going to say, I'm going to send my son to do it. And on account of his perfect righteousness, his sacrifice, I'm going to forgive sin and impute that righteousness to them and do what the law couldn't do because of our weakness. You've probably heard it said before, you know, the law is holy, but it can't make you holy. It is good, but it can't make you good. So that old covenant has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ so that we're no longer under its terms. All those who are in Christ are no longer under those terms. To use Paul's language in Romans 7, that we've died to sin. We've died to that and been born again to the terms of a new covenant. We don't have to be perfect to restore our relationship to God because Christ is perfect and restores our relationship to God. 2 Peter 3.18. So the righteousness of God satisfied in Christ, the wrath of God satisfied in the blood of Christ. And that's why he can bring us into this new covenant that is based on Jesus' merits, not our merits. So we just get to stand behind Christ and say, I'm with him. And God accepts that. It's what faith and union with Christ through the Spirit does, is now all his merits are counted to us. All our sin put on him and borne away. Hebrews 9.15, for this reason, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. In other words, the new covenant is a marriage covenant with Jesus Christ. That's what he's getting at. That we receive those terms through union with him. The new covenant is a kind of marriage covenant. We're united to Christ. He has taken us to be his bride. We've taken him to be our husband and forever. He forgives our sins. He reconciles us to God the Father. And that marriage has been accomplished through the sacrifice of his body, the shedding of his blood. And so that moment, our faith came to rest on Jesus. In that moment that God opened our eyes, softened our heart, gave us a new heart by the Spirit, we were united to him. And under the terms of the new covenant, that can never be separated. And we'll see that's part of why he says, what God has joined together, let nobody separate in your earthly marriage. Because what God has joined, he's joined you to Christ and that will never be separated. You'll never be taken from him. And he wants earthly marriage to reflect that, to be a picture of that. We are one spirit with him, 1 Corinthians six seventeen, And then Jesus instituted a sign of this new covenant. What's the sign? Lord's Supper, right? We'll do it this morning. We'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. That it's, we're celebrating, here's the blood of the new covenant. His body broken for us. His blood shed for us. So in a way, it, we're, we're renewing vows. We're accepting those terms. We're celebrating what God has done in Christ in that new covenant in our marriage to him. And so every time we eat the bread, drink the cup, that's what we're doing. We're remembering that union with Christ. You know, baptism is that symbol, that sign of being put into Christ, dying with him, being raised with him, being united to him. And then the Lord's Supper is just that ongoing reminder that this is what happened. And marriage is a covenant. We said all that so we would see this is the tradition now that your earthly marriage fits into. This is the biblical theology now that marriage is fitting into. So you think about all those covenants and now this idea that marriage is a covenant, you go, okay, this is not small. This is not a flippant thing. This is significant. But when you think about it, covenant is actually not really a word that many cultures use to describe or explain marriage. You notice how it's disappeared mostly from our world. 
of the idea that marriage is a covenant. You just go to talk to somebody on a street who isn't a believer and ask, what is marriage? And you're, you're not going to hear the word covenant come up. It's just not how our world thinks about it. Because it throws the nature of marriage onto sacred ground. You know, so even just that word covenant has a very sacred connotation, a very sobering connotation. Kind of throws it on the ground where God stands, where God speaks. So what we'll think about right now is just kind of two aspects of marriage that in most cultures in the world today are enforced, but especially here in the United States. One is going to be the marriage covenant, the other the marriage contract. We'll kind of talk about both. But firstly, marriage is a covenant before God between one man, one woman. Malachi 2.14. The Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. That's what God calls it. He said, and I've been a witness. I'm in your home. I hear your conversations. And I've been a witness, especially to what was happening in Malachi's day, of these Jewish men that were putting away their wives to take foreign women as their new wives. And God said, he calls that dealing treacherously. He says, I've been a, a witness to this, even though she's your companion and your wife by covenant. That's what he calls it. And that covenant in the Old Testament, it's not reflecting it as much as foreshadowing it. We talked about this before, even going back to Adam and Eve, when God created Adam and then Eve brought them together, joined them together, he has Christ and the church in mind. That's where it's, this is going. So even then, in the days of Malachi, it's, it's sort of foreshadowing that and what's coming. And so sexual union consummates and seals the covenant. That's, one of the, that's where it's sealed. And usually there is the shedding of blood. That was actually something that was present in Scripture, that after some of the wedding ceremonies, and then there was the consummation of the, through sexual union, and then the sheet would be brought out. In some cultures, that's where there was proof. She was a virgin. Well, think about that. That's the shedding of blood that is a part of the sealing of the covenant. That's, just not a, that's not just a medical, biological thing. There's reason behind some of that for God. And so it's that sexual union that consummates and seals the covenant. God is present. God is glorified. God joins a husband and wife together, and that's some of the mystery of it. We just know he has some hand there. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so marriage is a serious, beautiful, marvelous, God-reflecting covenant. It's witnessed by God, honored by God, guarded by God. But it's also a contract in most countries. The United States, certainly, there is a marriage contract that almost every society in the world, uh, it's recognized by the society in some way. In other words, it's not just a sort of spiritual union, not just a marriage co covenant, but there's a socially recognized legal societal agreement. Because who here is married? So after your wedding, what had to be signed? There had to be a license signed. Where did that have to be filed? You know, whatever county you were married in. So there's the recognition, okay, you may be married in the church, great ceremony, all those things, but then the society's not going to recognize it unless it's put before the authorities and signed off on by the judge. Because, again, there's assets and estates and names and all sorts of things that are being reconfigured. And so there is a contractual side that is recognized. There are certain legal responsibilities, certain legal privileges to marriage. And so from, I think from our point of view as followers of Christ, we would see that social contract as the societal acknowledgement of what God has done. 
the societal acknowledgement of what we have entered into together and vowed to do. In the same way, you can't just wake up and go, okay, we're divorced now, and then go your separate ways and get two different houses. As far as the state is concerned, are you divorced? Just because you said so. No, because can your spouse still get into that bank account? Can they still go buy things in your name? Can they? Yes. And so what has to happen for that marriage to end societally? Right, you've got to file for divorce. A judge also has to sign off on that. And so there is a societal cultural piece that isn't irrelevant. It's not the essence of it. It's not the heart of what marriage is, but it's part of it. Any questions or comments so far, just about anything that we've talked about, just on covenants all the way, no, all the way through just the marriage covenant? Yeah, why can't, the question is, why can't someone just in the back of their car decide we're, we're married? Yeah. You know, in one sense, I guess you could just live together long enough, and then there's this sort of weird common law marriage thing that kind of might be exa- honored, you know, culturally. But I think from a biblical standpoint, we would say, well, because this is actually a covenant before God that has, needs to be witnessed by the people of God. And has to have somebody who's a minister of the gospel that is actually sort of officiating and walking through those vows for those. But then that's a development over time and biblically. So when Isaac took Rebekah, Abraham sends his servant, gets Rebekah, brings her, and what do they do? What does it say? And he took her into his mother's tent, and they became husband and wife. And the thought was, okay, there was, I would imagine there was some kind of conversation involved, some kind of understanding of what was going on. But what we see is the moment they go in and consummate through sexual union, under the understanding that we're now husband and wife, it's done. But God's clearly involved. There are clearly people sort of witnessing some of that. And so there's certainly been a development over time in how all of that gets structured. But I think we would have to see when we go, okay, under the new covenant, this is something that is connected to the life of the church. This is something that is connected to his leaders, elders, pastors, who are thoughtfully leading in that worship service in that time, and then people who are witnessing. And that husband and wife realizing, okay, we're actually exchanging vows both before God but also before others. So those are why some of those structures have developed. But then in society, I think it's probably... Culture to culture, country to country, it's going to be a little bit different. It's just here, I think a lot of it comes down to assets and possessions and legalities of things that they've decided, okay, we want this paper. We want there to actually be um, somebody who signs off on this and what's happened, and then you have to file it with us so that now down the road, who owns what? Who, what do you do with kids? custody, possession, and so there's just the pragmatics of the legalities. I think it's probably why societally it's taken on the structure that it has. Any other thoughts? No questions about how sexual union consummates the marriage? Did you catch that? That you're not really married till it's done. And now there might be some couples where there's, for medical reasons, physiological reasons, it's not possible. And I think there's a special dispensation there, a particular way in which God's going to honor that. But in almost all other cases, we would say that, yeah, you're not, it's not consummated. It's not sealed until there's been sexual union. And that becomes important because there have been situations where a couple will approach me or another pastor and it's a year and a half in and they still haven't consummated their mar- the wedding or the, the, the marriage. And now the question becomes, are they married? And how would you answer that? Isn't that grounds for no? So that's, I think, how, though we haven't, I haven't been here when we've encountered it yet. I've been at churches where we've encountered it and 
we would say that would be, I would say that would be grounds for annulment. Um, and most churches I've heard would, would t- if they're thinking about it, I think in these biblical terms, they would, they would say that would be an annulment, not a divorce. Though according to the state, it would be a divorce. If they were to, if they were to choose to annul it. But more, I think it's just that idea that, okay, it's not consummated until the two have become one flesh. That that's not a small piece of it. That's actually a pretty big piece of it. And so just the ceremony, just the vows, just that verbal exchange is not the whole thing. Um, There does actually have to be the sealing of it. The importance of keeping covenants. This is, is important for us because our society is only making it easier and faster to divorce. My understanding now is you can divorce just online. You can just file it electronically. You don't have to go face anybody. You don't have to go explain it to anyone. The idea now that you have no-fault divorce, that's actually a fairly new development in recent years where it always has to be somebody had to be at fault, for, even society, for, for there to be a divorce. And now you can have what's called no-fault divorce. Just We just agree we don't want to do this anymore. And nobody has to be blamed. Nobody has to be in the wrong for it. So it's just getting easier, faster. Our society tends to demean marriage and in some ways honor divorce. And that's why it's so important we have to take our cues from the Lord. Or probably more commonly now, just act married without being married. You know, live together, try to enjoy all the benefits that are meant to come in marriage, but without the commitment, without sort of the vows, without the covenant part. And so that's why it's important to see, though, it's, you're not, you haven't consummated the marriage, you're not fully married till you consummate. At the same time, simply having sexual union doesn't make you married. And that's where there's a way in which you need both. You need all of those pieces operating in harmony. It's important to keep covenants because, firstly, the Lord keeps covenants. He is a covenant-keeping God. Moses asked the Lord, please show me your glory, Exodus 33:18. It's a great prayer. Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. And God's response is, I will surely cause my goodness to pass before you. It's a great summit. So what is God's glory? His goodness. And what is his goodness? Well, he's going to explain it in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, but will by no means clear the guilty. So when he says, I'll cause my glory, my goodness, Moses, to pass before you. And then as he does, he's going to speak those words. His identification at that moment for Moses. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. That's a way of saying he's a covenant-keeping God. It's his steadfast love that compels him to make a covenant, and it's his faithfulness that compels him to keep it. Those are sort of the hand-in-hand of his covenant-keeping. Steadfast love makes the covenant, faithfulness keeps it. And that's why even the name Yahweh has come to mean what? What's a way of Yahweh means, what's a phrase that now captures the meaning of his name? Let me just shout it out. It's his covenant name, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. So when Israel hears Yahweh, they know who is being talked about. This is the covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who made promises, and he's going to keep those promises. That's who Yahweh is. So even just that built into his name is this idea of covenant-keeper. Covenant-maker, covenant-keeper. Even after the people broke faith with him in Exodus 32, so he's up there speaking to Moses on the mountain, and they're down there making a golden calf, worshiping it, rising up to play. The Lord's going to discipline them, and then after it, it says they're going to renew covenant. He's going to renew their covenant with him. Okay, you've broken this. Now we're going to renew it. And he's, going to have to, he's going to establish a new covenant in Jesus Christ because we just simply weren't able to keep it. 
You'd have to spend the rest of eternity just renewing a covenant, an old covenant. So he's like, that's why I'm going to send a new covenant so that it's not dependent on you, but on my son. And then the Lord enables us to keep covenants. And he enables us to keep covenants through union with his son. Hebrews 8, 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. In other words, Christ fulfills the covenant on our behalf. And then he puts his words into our hearts, his spirit into our hearts, which then enables us to walk in covenant. It's difficult to honor covenants because of sin. Our sin, we're going to be married to a sinner. But the Lord does help us by his grace. The Lord believes that by his grace we're able to keep covenants and walk in covenant. Yeah, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit, and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Him strengthening us. Him helping us. Him ensuring that we will make it to the end. They're also important because the Lord takes vows seriously. How often have you reflected back on the vows you made at your wedding? They're easy to forget, right? How many of us don't remember the vows we made at our wedding? Like if someone were to say, hey, quote back the, the vows you made, I wouldn't be able to hit it word for word. I have a general sense. Even that sort of paints a little bit of the picture that we probably don't take them as seriously as we should. And there have been moments I sit with couples who are really thinking about divorce, and I'll say, hey, next meeting, bring in the vows you made at your wedding, and we'll talk them through. And what do you think is a very common response I might get? We don't have them. Okay, do you, do you have a copy of them anywhere? Do you, mm -mm, can you get them? No, we would have to call our pastor from then and see if he still has it on file. That says a little something. Now, m many of us may assume, okay, we're just going to keep them no matter what. Okay, but it's helpful to remember Okay, this was a vow we made before God. This is something we said, Lord, I promise. And to this person, I promise. And to the whole church, I promise. And so we need to remember, what was it we promised? Listen to Psalm 50. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Or, I'm sorry, yeah. And perform your vows to the Most High. So offer to God, a, so here's what he wants, offer to God as a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. And the main vows are vows made to the Lord before the Lord, but it also includes all vows before the Lord. Numbers 30 verse 2, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Remember when Jesus was explaining marriage to the disciples in Mark 10 and pretty much said, yeah, and a man can't just leave his wife except for sexual immorality because if he leaves and marries, he's committed adultery. What was the disciples' response to that? Do you remember what they said? well, then it's better not to marry. That was their response. And Jesus didn't go, whoa, 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 guys, you're taking this too seriously. He goes, this is a hard saying. And so, yeah, he's not going to minimize it. So when he really explained it, and, the, and so clearly it showed whatever understanding of marriage was there in the days of Jesus, it was a shallow one. Because when he explained it and said, no, you don't just leave. You don't divorce. Till death. God's joined you together. And the disciples are like, whoa. It might be better not to marry then. And Jesus is like, maybe. If you're not going to take that seriously. 
Ecclesiastes 5.4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Just right at it. Abuse and adultery break marriage vows. Abandoning a spouse breaks marriage vows. And so we're meant to see that the marriage covenant is actually a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. A glorious thing. A marvelous thing. Something that God made and gives as a gift. Something we enter into and exchange vows. And then now he says, keep those vows. And that leads us to this idea, this, the tragedy of covenant-breaking divorce. Especially when you think that the grace of God is naturally going to gravitate away from divorce. Because the grace of God in Christ at work in us is always going to be seeking to restore relationships. It's just the nature of what grace is. That's the nature of gospel-centered life, is it's a reconciling life. And so as followers of Jesus who have the gospel, we don't look at our relationships and go, okay, there's just not going to ever be sin here. I think sometimes we enter into a marriage thinking that. We're like, okay, finally, somebody who's going to treat me the way I should be treated. Okay, finally, somebody who loves me. And so we just have these expectations we don't even know about. And probably the greatest expectation is they will never wrong me. They will never seriously hurt me. They will never, and then you just fill in that blank. And a lot of times you don't realize you have that expectation until they do it or fail to do it. And then we panic and think, okay, what went wrong? What's amiss? And God's like, well, nothing. This is what the gospel's for, is a life of repentance and forgiveness, a life of reconciling ministry in your home, a living metaphor of the gospel right there between two people where there's confession and repentance and forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation over and over and over and over and over again. Does that remind you of something? Like how God relates to you? <laughs> like what life with Christ is like? With what? And so grace and the gospel always gravitates away from divorce. Which is why if, if you're struggling with, I think I just want to leave, I just want to divorce this person. I'm so sick of this. Or you're sitting and ministering to a couple where this is seriously being entertained. You don't have to ask, do you understand the gospel? You already know the answer to that question. They don't understand the gospel. And that shouldn't surprise any of us because we're all in the process of trying to learn to understand the gospel and apply it and to see the depth of grace and what it really means. Think about all that God has forgiven you in Christ. Not just the actions. Think about the thoughts he's forgiven, the emotions he's forgiven, the millions and millions and millions of departures from his perfect law that he's just forgiven. And now he says, you forgive her, you forgive him the way I've forgiven you. And you go, wow, that's, that's a lot. Well, then what? Surely there's a lot of stuff I shouldn't have to forgive. And would we want God to have that same approach to us? Here's all the stuff in your life. Okay, here's what I won't forgive. And so we see, okay, how just gospel thinking, Christ-centered thinking, just as we're being conformed to his image, and our marriages, by definition, that should be moving us away from divorce and toward a lifestyle of reconciliation. That's why pursuing divorce without biblical grounds is ungodly and sinful. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 19. So in the days of Jesus, there was a lot of debate between two schools of the Pharisees in regard to divorce and remarriage. So the school of Hillel, this was one rabbi teacher taught that, yeah, a man could divorce his wife for just about anything. She didn't sweep the kitchen well. She snores she doesn't dress the way he likes. Whatever it is, you can divorce her. It didn't take much. But then there's the school of Shammai, 
that followed the teaching of Shammai that made it a bit more stringent. There were still reasons you could probably divorce, but not many. So it was seen as sort of a very strict school. And that's the context and the background for Matthew 19. Verse 3, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They're just going to throw him right into the middle of that debate. And he answered, Have you not read? Which is just so humbling when Jesus starts a sentence that way. Of course, what does he mean? Have you not read broadly the books that are out there? It means, have you not read God's word? And then he goes right to the beginning. Have you not read that he created them from the beginning and made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? He thinks they should have drawn from Genesis 2 that no, you don't get to just divorce for any reason. And so he gives them that conclusion. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. But then he adds this little piece that he says, you should have seen this in Genesis 2. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So really clear. But then that leads them to another question for him, that now they're curious. They're like, well, wait. He says, well, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He's referring to Deuteronomy 24, where Moses is talking about giving your wife a certificate of divorce, sending her away. When he said to them, well, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Meaning... Yeah, because of your hardness of heart, you're just going to do what you're going to do. And so Moses gave that as a concession, which then begs you to ask the question, well, what's the concession? Well, in the context of Deuteronomy 24, certificate of divorce, that you send her away so that if she marries somebody else and then they divorce, she can't come back to you. That's an abomination. Now it goes from sin, wickedness, to something far worse. So in some way, the certificate was to guard against going back to your first husband after you'd married somebody else, or you're just swapping around. I think in another sense, especially in Deuteronomy 24 and in the rest, it's also saying, you know, you're sending her away. What's that saying to the entire covenant community of Israel about her? What are they all going to assume? She's committed adultery. That's what it has to mean. So you give a certificate of divorce that's making it clear you're just done with her. And so in some way it was to protect her. In another way it was to prevent all this sort of spouse swapping. But the point being Jesus is making, it was all because of the hardness of your heart. It was all because you're just going to do what you're going to do what you're going to do. And sometimes laws are given just to guard against the fallout. Okay, here's what you're to do. Okay, and when you don't, here's what you're to do then. That's what he's saying. And he clarifies it when he, what he says next. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And it's in response to that, the disciples are going to say, well, if that's the way of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Which means this is not how everybody was thinking about it how they should have been thinking about it, but not how they were. Another reason is that God hates divorce. This is one of the primary reasons we should remain faithful to our spouses in every way that Scripture requires. So it's not just, oh Lord, keep us from divorce. It's, oh Lord, keep us from living in any sort of way that leads to it. Because there's a lot of ways we can harm marriage, not just through divorce. There's a lot of ways we can drive toward divorce without divorcing. And so we're meant to be concerned, I think, with all that as well. And it's not, okay, I'm just going to grit my teeth, bow up in my own strength and make it happen. It's, Lord, please have mercy. Lord, please change me. Lord, please teach me to love the way you love. 
Please teach me to forgive the way you forgive. Please teach me to repent and be humble when I'm wrong or wrong them. So I don't want us to take from this that good marriage equals just not divorcing. Or faithful marriage just means don't divorce. Or that the goal of marriage is to not divorce. Rather, the goal is to help tell the story of Christ in the church. The goal is to love this person you've entered into with covenant before God for the glory of Christ and their good and the edification of the church. And if we're doing that by God's grace, then divorce isn't really on the table. Malachi 2, verse 15, back to these men who are putting away their wives of their youth and taking foreign wives to be theirs. And here's what God says in verse 15, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. Is that interesting? Okay, all those who are doing this, none of them think the way I do. None of them approach life the way I do. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So what he's saying is, I am faithful to my covenant promises, and you are my people, and I call you to be faithful to your covenant promises. And if you have my way of thinking, if you have my spirit working in you, this isn't what you do. We also get a sense there that the foundation for raising godly children is a godly marriage. You're seeking godly offspring. Some of that is he's preserving the line of Israel in such a way that the seed of woman that's going to crush the serpent's head is going to come from it. In another way, remember how he's calling Israel to be distinctive. And so you start putting away your wives of covenant and taking foreign wives from Moab or Midian or the Ammonites, and now you're raising your children in this mix of pagan and idolatrous and, you know, practices. And that violates Deuteronomy 6. That violates everything that God was trying to do in Israel. That's the other thing he's talking about. But also the image of Christ in the church is at stake. There are biblical grounds for divorce. It's worth talking about those. We saw it in Matthew 19 that adultery can be a biblical grounds for divorce. So anytime there's divorce, there, there will be sin. But it doesn't mean that the one divorcing is in sin. That's an important distinction. It requires sin of some kind. But we get the sense of Matthew 19.9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife is set for immorality and marries another commits adultery. And I think that just then suggests, okay, that there are cases where you divorce your wife or husband for sexual immorality, for adultery, and it's not wrong. Because that also tells the story of Christ in the church, another angle of it. But also abandonment, we see this in 1 Corinthians 7.15. If the unbelieving partner or spouse separates, that's what it means there, spouse. So partner isn't the way our world would use the word partner. This is if the unbelieving spouse, husband or wife, separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. In other words, it's not bound. God has called you to peace. In other words, a, a Christian married to a non-Christian. And what would have been happening a lot in this time is people were coming to faith in Christ. The gospel's going out. Men and women are repenting, believing, and getting converted. But their spouse may not. And so now you have a believer married to an unbeliever. And what Paul's saying is, hey, just because you're now a Christian and they're not, you don't get to leave. If they consent to remain married or want to be married, you stay married. But if they decide, I don't want to be married to a Christian, and they leave, Paul says, you're not bound in those cases, for God's called us to peace, meaning you're not meant to put up a fight, make a scene, and because there's, there's an allowance for that for you. You're not bound in that kind of case. That's what he's getting at. But then a third, I think, that's worth mentioning is abuse. Domestic violence. That when there's 
a pattern of abuse or violence in a marriage. And authorities have intervened. Maybe the church has intervened. And this man or woman is, is unrepentant, is unwilling to change, unwilling to get help, unwilling to submit themselves to serious ongoing accountability and to serious care from the church, then there are cases where that moves to church discipline. And that part of that church discipline can be that that spouse, the abused spouse, is freed to divorce. Some of that I would take from Exodus 21, where if a man took a slave as a woman but then married her, and is married to this girl, and then eventually is sort of tired of her and decides to marry another. Here's what God says. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. She gets to leave. She gets to divorce him. In other words, if he refuses to care for her most basic needs for survival... She doesn't have to stay. She can go. Well, what if he's beating her? You know, is that also fit under sort of a category of basic need for survival? And so that would be sort of one kind of passage. There's others like Psalm 82 and other places that we would say, okay, there's a responsibility of the church and of leaders to protect the weak, to protect the oppressed. And so in cases where there's a pattern of marital violence or domestic abuse, and the church is intervening and should intervene, there's the obligation that God gives us to protect the prey from the predator. And so we have to be careful where, when we're thinking about these kinds of things, I find that we can't just say, okay, the, the verse has to have husband and wife in the verse for it to be a marriage verse. Because what if no longer does husband and wife, no longer those are the, word, the only words that apply, what if the words predator and prey also apply? What if oppressor and oppressed also apply? What if abused and abuser are other words? Well, now the marriage covenant is actually being weaponized as a means of oppression. And so there's lots of other passages of Scripture we have to bring to bear in how we navigate that. Again, there's a lot more we can talk about. If you ever have questions about that, we can talk offline. If this is something that for you, you wonder about or have questions about, yeah, just call me, email. Oh, we're almost out of time. Uh, biblical grounds for remarriage, we'll just walk through briefly. We already talked about some with abandonment by an unbeliever, with adultery, especially unrepentant adultery. But then death of a spouse is the clearest grounds for remarriage. Romans 7.3, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Paul's not teaching on marriage there. He's teaching on how uh, redemption in Christ has changed our relationship to the law. But he uses a marriage illustration that says something about marriage. Namely, if your spouse dies, then you're no longer bound because marriage is, a, is an earthly, temporal picture of an eternal reality. So we're not going to be married to each other in heaven. Jesus is going to be clear on that. We're not given in marriage in heaven. And so that's one clear sort of grounds for remarriage. Abandonment by an unbeliever, adultery. But then in all those cases, there needs to be wisdom and counsel. Just because you're free to remarry doesn't mean you should. Doesn't mean it's a good idea. Even if... You're divorced because of an adulterous, unrepentant spouse. The better thing may be to just wait and pray. And pray for their repentance. Pray for God to strike their heart and bring them to confession and seeking reconciliation. So just because free to remarry doesn't mean it's necessarily a wise thing or the best thing or a good thing. But then in all these cases, I wish we had more time to talk about it, there can be forgiveness. Meaning if you're here and you've divorced your spouse wrongly and even remarried wrongly, you can grieve that. You can repent of that. You can seek God's forgiveness for that and you're forgiven. And you have to face it. There have been times where I've sat actually with married couples. It's their second marriage and their first marriage has ended sinfully 
and their remarriage was sinful. And the counsel isn't, okay, divorce. It's grieve, repent, confess that sin that led here. But then realize that, and as you, you're forgiven. You're restored, and, and God will honor your marriage. Think about David and Bathsheba. Was that a sinful marriage? Yeah, and is that going to cost some things? Is it going to cost, is God going to bring, though, David to repentance? Yes. And then after he does, he's going to say, now go into your wife and comfort her. And he goes in, and, and Solomon is brought from that union. And Solomon's name means peace. So even in that case, you see that there was all this sin that led up to that marriage. God's going to confront it. David's going to repent of it. And then God's going to bless the union in that order. And so just even to know if you're here or if you have family members or you're counseling others, do ministry to those who, this is the history. There is a way to forgiveness and to peace. Um, any final questions, thoughts, comments before we wrap up? Okay, say it again. I'm sorry. Is there anything unique today to the fear of commitment? Fear of entering into marriage? Um, I mean, there, I, think, I think in human history, just everything cycles. And so I think there's ways in which what we see today is just a replay of previous times, but then maybe 20 years ago it wasn't that way, 40 years ago. So there is a way in which I see, depending on the part of even our country you live in, um, where just the, uh, yeah, the fear of committing to marriage is higher than I've ever seen in my lifetime. It doesn't mean 80 years ago there wasn't plenty of it, or 200 years ago. I just know today that to me is a significant piece, especially serving as a pastor, Ruth and I have talked about it, in the Northeast for a season where just work and career and the pressure to, you know, to, to climb and achieve that was on people there, that people were pushing marriage off well into their 30s, and they weren't even thinking about it being a good idea in their 20s. So there was that part, just things that would interfere. But then secondly, I do see there's a real fear this how do I know if he or she is the one? And, and sort of scrutinizing at a level of detail and control that makes committing to marriage, you're almost paralyzed because you're so afraid of making a mistake, so afraid of, and in a way making it far more complicated. Like, okay, do you love Jesus? Yes. Does she love Jesus? Yes. Do you see marriage as a covenant before God until death? Yes. Do you generally like each other and enjoy each other and see yourself going in the same direction? Yes. Okay, well then, what do you want to do? And, but, I mean, there's charts, there's pie charts, there's algorithms, there's, I mean, people have spreadsheets for, here's what I'm looking in a spouse. And I'm like, well, uh, singleness is great, you know, and um, you can serve the Lord that way too, because I, th I think that's where this is headed. And, and so there is a way in which we can feed those fears by wanting, again, wanting it all so perfectly aligned. And I find with a lot of couples, it's okay, what do we, how do I find the kind of spouse that I just won't have problems? Like that we're so perfectly aligned, you just hit cruise control and you're there. And just God is pleased, there's just no avoiding no, he will, he will humble you, teach you, sanctify you, grow you by being married to other. There's no escaping other. And that's even some of the, the pride even in narcissism of same-sex marriage. 
is I don't want to be married to other. I want to be married to same. I want to look across and see someone like me. Um, and, and again, it's not thought about that way. There's, it's an unconscious, underneath, I think, fleshly part of that desire, whereas, no, God's going to give you other. That's why he says, you know, through Peter that, or Peter's going to tell us, you'll dwell with her in an understanding way, like a weaker vessel. She's a woman. She's not a man. And wives honor him, you know, because, yes, he's not like you. And so there's a way in which there's no avoiding the differences. But if, but if that's, if we're afraid of that, if no, I, I want it all lined up. We need to think the same way, act the same way, see it all the same way, then that'll make it really hard to commit to. So let me pray for us.